Martin Luther's sermon for the first Sunday after Easter on John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. You're listening to the Martin Luther Sermon Podcast, and this is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller reading Luther's sermon for Quasimodo Geniti, or the first Sunday after Easter. If you'd like to have more information about this sermon, other sermons in the Luther Sermon Podcast series, please visit the website of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado at www.hope-aurora.org. This sermon is from Luther's House Postal, and I'm reading from a translation published by J.A. Schulze, publisher in Columbus, Ohio, in 1884, a text and translation that is in the public domain. First, the Gospel lesson, John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then they were, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed, Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Luther's Sermon Our text recounts the same incident of which mention is made in the previous sermon for Easter. It occurred after the return of the two disciples from Emmaus to Jerusalem, where they told their brethren that they had seen the Lord. In our text, however, we have a fuller account of this occurrence, for St. John differs in his description from the other evangelists in this, that he not only narrates the incidents, but also adds the sayings, the words of Christ, which are indeed of chief importance. According to this, his custom, he recounts in our text the words not found in the other evangelists, which were spoken by the Lord after he had greeted his disciples and had shown them his hands and feet. As my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. These are most precious words by which Christ invests the disciples with the office of preaching, making arrangements for the application of the glorious results of his suffering and resurrection. For if this great occurrence had not been preached in its various bearings, if it had remained a mere historical event, it would have been of no avail for us. 
This we learn from the condition of the papists. They are acquainted with the event and its record as well as we, but they do not preach it as Christ directs. Hence their mere historical knowledge of it benefits them no more than if it were the story of Dietrich of Bern, which one hears and learns. They have simply the recollection of the occurrence. It is therefore absolutely necessary to make a proper use of the narrative of Christ's suffering and resurrection. How to do this we learn from the words of the Lord himself when he says, As my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. And how the Father sent Christ was described long ago by the prophet Isaiah in the 61st chapter, where it reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, and hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. With such instructions Christ was sent, and now declares that in no other way will he send his disciples. He entrusts to them the office of preaching, that it may remain in force even to the end of time, and he orders them to preach just as he preached while in the flesh. This command, then, and this mission to preach has reference only to the doctrine to, to be taught. The disciples are instructed to preach no other doctrine than that which Christ himself proclaimed. The character of this doctrine is clearly and beautifully expressed by the prophet Isaiah when he describes Christ as anointed and sent to cheer the downcast and the timid, to comfort the brokenhearted. All other preaching is erroneous and surely not as Christ enjoined. It is mosaic in its nature. Moses preached in such a style that the fearful, timorous hearts were yet more affrighted and became still more disconsolate. The preaching of Christ, however, aims to comfort the distressed. His teaching was new as the works which he accomplished, the like of which the world had never witnessed before, were new, namely, that the Son of God suffered, died, and rose again. Christ here fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah, for thus we read in the words of our text, He breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Here we have the right definition of the powers of the spiritual kingdom, which is as far removed from the nature of the governments of this world as the heavens are from the earth. They who execute the authority of this spiritual kingdom are true kings, real potentates and mighty rulers, but their government is not absolute. We learn from our text how it is limited. It extends, indeed, over the entire world, as the words clearly indicate, yet it is confined in its operation to the sins of men. It has nothing to do with money or lands, with food or raiment, nor with anything pertaining to the outward life of man. Such affairs are regulated by emperors, kings, princes, and other officers chosen for this purpose whose duty it is to administer the secular governments, that men may live in prosperity and peace. The spiritual government concerns itself with the spiritual necessities of men, with their sins. Where these are found, their authority exercises its sway, and nowhere else. It is a great mistake to mix these duties and powers, as the Pope and his bishops have done, who abused their spiritual authority and became lords of this world, even to such an extent that emperors and kings had to bow before them. Christ did not invest his disciples with any such authority. He did not ordain them to administration of temp temporal governments, but to the office of preaching, thereby giving them authority over sins. 
These functions of the office of the ministry are therefore these, to preach the gospel of Christ and to forgive sins to the penitent, desponding souls, but on the other hand, to retain them to the impenitent and unbelieving. This authority over sin has been miserably abused by the Pope, for by it he regarded himself privileged to make laws and regulations as he pleased, not only for the church but also for the whole world, and thus did not at all regard the proper duties pertaining to the office of the keys. In this he greatly erred. It is not my duty as a preacher of the gospel, as a messenger of Christ, to instruct you in your business affairs, in agriculture, in matrimony, or other similar transactions. God gave you your reason to guide you in all such matters, and if you should be in doubt as to this or that in regard to these things, you can go and ask advice of jurists and other people who are well versed in such affairs. My duty in office relates to your spiritual condition. I must tell you that you are a sinner, and that you would be eternally damned and such if Christ had not paid your debt and become your Savior. To understand this duty well, it is simply necessary to know what sin is. Sin is not gold nor other similar possessions, nor wor not worldly authority, not our daily labor, not bread or wine, nor anything of this kind, but it is a heavy burden which oppresses the heart and conscience before God, so that we are afraid of His wrath and await eternal damnation. We speak here of real sins which God adjudges as such as which being bring death, and not of those imaginary sins which the Pope and his jugglers, the bishops, have invented, such as the omission of fasting on certain days, the eating of meat, or the careless handling of certain monastic trampings, these are papistic sins invented and ordained by preachcraft, but before God they are not sins, nor do they bring condemnation, for he gave no commandments relating to these matters. When we speak of sins in this connection, we mean real sins, actual transgressions of the law, both human and divine. Sins not designated as such by men, but by the word of God. Sins in which we are born, and in which we live. With sins of this kind, the apostles are here enjoined by Christ himself to busy themselves, either to forgive them, or to retain them by virtue of their office. But in other matters, temporal in their nature, they should not interfere. Every apostle, and every minister of the gospel, is authorized to proclaim unto sinners who will not repent and are obstinately wicked that they are in the clutches of the devil and will be surely thrust into the jaws of hell. On the other hand, it is equally a part of their office to assure the penitent and believers that because of the suffering and resurrection of Christ, heaven and eternal life will be theirs. This authority and power rests in the word of God, not in the person of those who preach it, hence their decision is valid and is acknowledged as such even by the devil, and will surely free from sin those who accept it in true faith. This privilege and authority, which the apostles have, yea, which every Christian has, to pronounce judgment respecting sins, is of such vast importance that all the powers of emperors and kings are as nothing compared with it. For this declaration is as powerful and sure as if Christ himself proclaimed it. For thus he says, As my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. Thus we see how the power of the church and her authority are only to be employed in relation to sin. They meddle not with matters of state, with temporal concerns, 
but address themselves to the fears and burdens of the conscience, which accuses and convicts before God. Again, we learn from this how carefully we should guard against treating certain things as sinful, in which there is no transgression, for if we do, we are, as I have said above, guilty of inventing sins which are spurious. And the result would be that, in order to escape their imagined horrors, we would seek refuge in a righteousness which is also a sham and spurious. Let us therefore understand this well. Sin is the transgression of the law of God, and accuses mightily. A failure to comply with popish whims and regulations is not sin. God does not regard it as such. But alas, it is only too evident how many people live in actual great and open sins, in avarice, adultery, theft, usury, anger, envy, drunkenness, blasphemy, and the like. They are hardened in their sins and perfectly indifferent. There is no lack of sins, but there is a lack of their acknowledgment and of repentance. Here, then, there can be no application of the authority to release. Here it is necessary to bind. This power is mentioned in the words, And whosoever's sins ye retain, they are retained. It behooves us, therefore, to make a correct distinction in regard to sin. Some sins are such both in the sight of God and in our sight. Some sins, however, are such only before God, not in our eyes. That is, we're ignorant of them, and therefore do not concern ourselves about their remission. David says, Tibi Pekavi, Lord, I have sinned before thee, and I have done evil in thy sight. In these words he confesses his wrong and the conviction that it is displeasing in the sight of God. He says, in fact, I see and feel my sin not only in thought, but in my experience of its dreadful power. It is a terrible burden. The very devil himself who comes to accuse me before God and to drag me away into hell and everlasting death. St. Paul, Romans 7, speaks thus of this condition. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. That is, sin is ever with me, but without the coming of the law, it does not disturb us. We are at ease as to the consequences. Hence, we continue upon the path of evil, committing sin upon sin, without any fear of God or thought of amendment. But as soon as the thunder of the law penetrates the heart, the conscience is aroused and becomes aware of sin. Then we realize what a horrible destructive power sin is, how it robs us of God and hands us over to the devil and consigns us to hell. Hence the apostle continues, But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. This is the true sin, which is such both before God and in our own sight. Thus David, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, was at first careless as to the sin of which he was guilty. It slept, yea, it was not yet dead. But when Nathan came and thundered into his heart the words, Thou art the man who art guilty of death before God, sin began to revive in David's soul. Nathan, however, comforts him with the promise, Thou shalt not die. Thus we see how the authority of the apostles is not applied in worldly affairs which merely pertain to the outward life of man, nor only to such transgressions as the civil government judges and punishes, but it exerts its power over sin, which is regarded and held as such by God and man. Yea, the sins of the whole world are thus under the control of the apostles and of all ministers of the gospel, 
even of every Christian in case of necessity, so that we can be fully assured of the forgiveness of our sins when our pastor, or in the case of his absence, when any Christian declares it unto us in the name of Jesus Christ. Such a declaration will be as valid as if Christ were personally present to pronounce it, or had sent his angel from heaven to proclaim it unto us. Such authority and power is, however, not given to the apostles and ministers that they on that account should be overbearing and proud. It is not their own power which they exercise. They are simply servants of God to bring help to their fellow men, to rescue them from the mighty thraldrum of the enemy, of their soul's salvation. It is a great and glorious achievement when a man, himself a poor miserable sinner, exercises this power and puts to flight an enemy so strong that otherwise the whole world combined could not rout him. Christ says, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And again, Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Since then these words, As my Father hath sent me, even so I send you, are so plain, no one should doubt that his sins are really forgiven as soon as the absolution is pronounced. For this reason we so frequently exhort you to apply these glorious gifts which Christ has left to his church and never to despise them. Christ has instituted the office of the ministry to battle against sin and to remit it whenever it really exists and is confessed in true faith. With these so-called sins invented by men, we have here nothing to do. We mean sins which are such and which move the heart with terror. Adam preaches the same doctrine to his son Cain in Genesis, where he tells him, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. Thou art a sinner, but art not aware of it. Sin, as it were, slumbers, but in a very unquiet place. If it is aroused, thy condition will be greatly changed. Sin, though dormant now, will not sleep on forever, it will awake and torment thy conscience with terrible stings, driving thee to despair. Those persons do not concern themselves about sin are sinners indeed, but they cannot be absolved, their sins will be retained, for they desire no remission and prefer to continue in their evil ways. The doctrine of the papists in this regard was, Let him who desires forgiveness meditate upon his sins and be penitent. On this penitence, they then based the remission of sins. It is possible that this practice arose from an imitation of the example of the fathers who insisted upon it, just as we now do, that whosoever wished to be absolved must first be truly penitent and ready to confess his sins. This is right, and just as it should be. But it is entirely false when such penance is regarded as meriting forgiveness, when it is made the grounds of the remission of sins. Penitence has no merits. It is simply a realization of the enormity and power of sin, which makes itself felt in the heart. Hence it is wrong to trust in penitence as if it were sufficient to bring remission of sins. Previous to this penitence, there is no account made of sin. It is indeed present, but man is dead to it. It sleeps. It is sin deprived of vitality, as Adam tells Cain in the words quoted above. But when sin revives and makes itself felt, it disturbs the heart and conscience. Yet we cannot call these manifestations a meritorious work. It is simply, as St. Paul calls it, living sin. 
and surely it would be foolish to assert that sin can merit grace. The people under the papacy were therefore greatly deceived when absolution was given them on account of their penitence as being some merit or good work. All the papal bulls conveying forgiveness of sins are directed to the contritus et confessus, to the penitent and those who have made a confession. Penitence, if real, is nothing but sin acknowledged, and surely there is no merit in this. We have remission of our sins when we have faith in the words of Christ and accept implicitly the declaration made in his name that our sins are forgiven, not on account of our penitence, which is only sin experienced and confessed, on which we can build no hope of remission, but on account of the word of Christ in which we trust. Mere penitence or feeling sin has the effect to drive us away from faith and from God, of whom we are afraid. This makes sin more terrible and more effective, and causes in the end agony and despair, which is but a multiplication of sins. The thief, who had fallen into the hands of the executioner, increases his crime by adding to his theft a revengeful feeling against those in authority and against God. St. Paul speaks pertinently of this, Romans 7, when he says, Sin, by the commandment, becomes exceedingly sinful. That is, sin becomes strong and overwhelming in its effects. This they called penitence, when to one sin many others were added, so that the whole world is filled with sins and peace and rest are nowhere to be found. Where the heart is in such a condition as this, despair must follow. Judas the betrayer had such penitence as this. Christ, with his cheering word and command respecting the remission of sins, must also be present, else all is dark and hopeless. Where there is penitence and fear, Christ approaches and said, Thou art full of sins, and in misery turnest away from me. I cannot absolve thee on this account. Penitence and sorrow are necessary, for without them there can be no sincere hatred of sin and no longing desire to be freed from it. But do not confine thyself to this lamentation. Come to me, hear and accept my word in true faith, and thou shalt have remission of sins. This indeed was not the style of preaching among the papists. They sent the penitent to St. James, to Rome, or other sacred places, telling them to trust in their penitence and do, to do good work. The word and commandment of Christ, in reference to the remission of sins, was entirely disregarded by them. But this command stands here immovable. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. This is plain enough. Nowhere else but in the words of Christ our Savior can we find forgiveness of sins. Go for this purpose wherever else you please. You will surely go amiss. What did we gain by it when we tortured ourselves with fasting, singing, prayers, vigils, reading mass, and the like? Were our sins remitted on that account? Surely not. It is not a is it not a shame and an abomination that we were taught to seek remission of sins by means of penitence, by, which by itself is only sin aggravated? If my works, my penitence, and confession can do it, of what value is the word of Christ, and what need is there of his command in regard to the remission of sins? We might as well be Jews and Turks who also desire to be saved, though they reject Christ. The Pope is really worse than the Turk and Jew, because he abuses the name of Christ in teaching his false doctrine. 
we ought ever to remember that Christ makes remission of sins dependent on his word and not upon pilgrimages, masses, alms, or other so-called good works of whatever kind they may be. Whoever now desires remission of sins, let him go to his minister or to some other fellow Christian who has God's word, and he will surely find consolation there. It is certain that by no exertions of our own can we overcome sin, and everything we do, even if we torture ourselves to death, will be in vain. This was often experienced in popery. When one was troubled in his conscience and went into a monastery or prefer, performed some other penitential work for the purpose of earning peace and happiness, he had to confess that neither cowl nor rosaries nor fastings nor other penances could in the least remove his misery or ease his conscience. We know the reason of this failure. Christ tells us in our text that sins are remitted or retained through his word. He whose sins are not remitted by this word, because he hears it not, has them retained by the same word, for this is the only means whereby sins are effectually dealt with. You may therefore do what you please. Your sins will be retained if you depend on your own works and despise these words of Christ. The Lord our God made forgiveness of sins contingent on no work that we might perform, but on the great work which Christ accomplished when he died for the world and for our benefit arose from the dead. The application of his work he makes through the word which he entrusted to the apostles, to the ministers of the gospel, yea, to every Christian, authorizing them to declare unto all who seek it the remission of sins. Thus we have pointed out to us the only way in which we can surely find remission of sins. The command has been issued long ago to remit sins, and in the word we are sure to find this remission. If we seek it not there, our sins will be retained, do what we may. For as has been repeatedly said, there is no remission except in the word of Christ. This word, however, has been entrusted to the apostles and all Christians, and they are to apply it. He who seeks any other remedy for the ills of sins shall not find it no matter what he may do to accomplish that end. This divine declaration, that sin is removed by the word alone, without the assistance of any works, stands firmly fixed. It must be heeded by us, or we have no remission. This, however, has not only reference to the absolution, but, as we mentioned already in the beginning of our sermon, to all the functions of the holy ministry. Christ declares in the words of our text that remission of sins shall be proclaimed and imparted by the preaching of the word and by the holy sacraments. The object of preaching the gospel is to bring men to a knowledge of their sins that they may become pious and just. We are baptized that through the death of our Lord our sins may be forgiven, and Christ has instituted his supper that we may truly believe that his body was sacrificed for us and that his blood was shed in our behalf, and therefore have no doubts of the remission of our sins. To strengthen our faith in this forgiveness of sins, Christ so ordained that it each one must receive the sacrament for himself. It will not answer to baptize one for many, nor to administer the Lord's Supper to one as the representative of others. Each one must himself enjoy these blessings. In like manner, each one must for himself Hear the word and seek absolution if he desires to be comforted thereby. Let no one doubt 
when the declaration of remission of sin in Jesus' name is pronounced, that it is truly and that all his sins are removed, yea, that he is released from them also in heaven and in the sight of God. The word and sacraments, therefore, belong together, for Christ has included the sacraments in the word. Without the word, we could not be comforted by the sacraments. We would not even know what they are. It is consequently not only a great blindness and error, but also a terrible abuse when the papists preach remission of sins regardless of the word upon which all depends, and delude people by directing them to seek absolution through penances and works of their own. But because the remission of sins is communicated through the word, which, as has been frequently said, was entrusted by our Lord to the church and her ministers, yea, unto all Christians, that it should be preached, it follows that this remission of sins must be believed, and that there is no way of obtaining it except by faith. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is the very foundation of our creed. The word of Christ, which he gave to his disciples, can certainly not be seized with the hands, nor by any self-imposed works, such as fasting, prayers, giving of alms, and the like. Faith alone can appropriate it, and the heart alone is the proper receptacle for it. It is evident and certain that we are justified only through faith, because remission of sins comes through the word, and the word can be received only by faith. Of this the Pope and his party are ignorant. Yea, they are so hardened that they refuse to learn it. They have put aside both faith and the word, and have told the people to depend on their own works, on their piety and merits. Would that God might silence these fellows with their false doctrines. It behooves us, however, to remember this papistic doctrine with all its horrors, and to compare it with the true doctrine which we preach, else we are in danger of falling again into error, and of again seeking remission of sins by our own works. Christ directs us to his word, and away from our works. He makes his word powerful, and has it preached by his disciples, whom he sends even as he was sent by the Father. Where there is forgiveness of sins, and the hearts, as St. Peter says, are purified by faith, their good works will surely follow, proceeding from a sanctified source. Faith slumbers not, and the Holy Ghost ever prompts to obedience to God's word and to a warfare against flesh and sin. May God grant us grace, through Christ Jesus, both to believe and to experience this truth. Amen. This has been Dr. Martin Luther's sermon on the first Sunday after Easter, Quasimodo Geniti, a, t- a sermon on the text John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, reading for the Luther Sermon Podcast. For more Luther sermons, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org.